Pastor Todd. Well, good morning, church family. It's great to be here uh, with you in worship. I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by a journey? Uh, so whenever I, I hear a question like this, I think my, my naturally goes to something like a business trip or even a family vacation. First, you need to count the cost to make sure you can afford to take the journey. There's extensive planning involved to figure out how to get from point A to point B um, and uh, to factor in possible delays. You need to think about what supplies you need and then go and buy them. You have to make sacrifices here, here and there, like getting up really, really early sometimes to be where you need to be at the right time. And then there's the obstacles that come up, like an unexpected change in a public systems transportation schedule. It can be overwhelming to put in the time and effort needed that we need to make and the sacrifices that we need to make to go on a journey. But whenever I've done this very thing, the gains have far more outweighed any perceived losses. What it requires of us is something that American runner Jess Movald calls the long run mindset. For a time, Jess lost her passion to press on. In fact, she shared in an article that tempo runs actually scared her. A tempo run is a uh, run that's uh, continuous. It requires sustained effort in order to get through. She remembered planning for a run and began making excuses for why she was going to fail, that she just wasn't fit enough, she wasn't prepared enough, it just wasn't going to work. During her time of pre preparation, instead of finding her groove, she adopted a loser's mindset. But then she started to think about that and later realized that she treated her training plan itself like a tempo run, where if you don't hit your pace early on, it's impossible to catch up. Her solution, she began to adopt a long-run mindset, settling into a relaxed pace, enjoying the routine, focused only on finishing. She's no longer desperate for immediate results and cares about the journey, cares about the big picture. Just Movold's advice for us is really sound as it comes to living out our faith and pacing ourselves for the spiritual journey ahead of us. She says that your why is what's most important. What are the reason for the miles that you're running? What is it that you're running toward? When you know the reason, the miles themselves become easier. And the beautiful thing about the long run mindset is that you can have a bad mile in the middle but still finish strong because you know why you're in the race. You know why you're in the race. Church family, we're one week beyond the empty tomb and we're standing uh, with the empty tomb in our backs and the crossroad of our faith before us. The hope of all creation has been revealed through the defeat of sin and death on the cross and the glorious hope of resurrection and new life emerging from the tomb through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when we focus on the cross and on the tomb and on Jesus, we know our why in life. We know that we're created, that we are called to share the good news of God's grace. That's, that's our race. That is what we're racing towards. But one of the questions that comes to my mind is, now what? It's certainly one of the questions that was on the minds of the church, of the original disciples uh, in the days that followed Jesus' resurrection. And that is often what we wonder, too, when we come to something as exciting as 
as spiritually packed as Easter is. And then we get a week later, and now we're asking the question, now what? The point I'm getting to here is this, that there's a sense of anticipation in the air in those early days in the early church, but an uncertainty of where this journey leads next and what the next step actually looks like. You see, life is a spiritual journey over mountains, across plains, and through valleys. Uh, our mountains are those moments in life when we feel blessed by God, when God's presence is abundant and clear to us. It can be those moments of spiritual awakening. It can be moments where uh, we're perhaps experiencing a significant life event like the birth of a child, a gift from God. It's those moments when we feel we could do a triathlon with little to no training. Then there are the plains, those times in our lives when we feel a bit restless, somewhat at ease, but searching. Times when we try our best to pace ourselves with the ordinary demands of life. And then there are the valleys, moments of sorrow, devastation, and loss when God seems absent, when it is such an effort just to take one step forward because we're so weary from the journey. The question we need to consider with the empty tomb at our backs and the crossroad of our faith before us is how do we take the long-run view in a spiritual sense? Well, Jesus gives us a command and a promise in John 15, and this is what Jesus says to his disciples and, in essence, to us as well. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, I was doing some reading this week, and I learned that a cheetah can run over 70 miles an hour. That's, that's super fast, 70 miles an hour. But the thing is that a cheetah can't sustain that pace for long because within its long and sleek body is a disproportionately small heart. If a cheetah chases down its prey on the African plains and misses in its first attempt, it must abandon the chase because it doesn't have the heart for sustained effort. I think sometimes we take the cheetah's approach to living out our faith in Jesus. We speed through our work, and we have great energy, but we don't have the heart for sustained effort. We often think we need to run faster. We need to work harder. But what we really need is more staying power, which can only come from an enlarged heart, from a bigger heart. Motion and busyness, this is important, listen, listen to this. Motion and busyness can never be a substitute for inviting Jesus into our hearts and allowing him to enlarge them. It's all about abiding in Jesus. Today we're going to talk about how to sustain our Easter hope long term. I want to share with you six biblical strategies that we can use to enlarge our heart and to abide in Jesus to run that race well, and to finish faithfully wherever God has for us. And we'll do it by joining two of Jesus' disciples on a journey of their own. Uh, 
at this point, Judas has died, and these two disciples we're about to talk about are not part of the original group that have been with Jesus for several years. Like us, they're mostly unknown, regular people who are going about their lives, trying to make sense of the events that just happened in Jerusalem and what it means for their lives. So church family, how can you sustain your Easter hope long term? The first way is this. Deal with your barriers. Our story begins on that first Easter morning, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that day, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So whenever I read this text, the thing that pops out to me in this section is the fact that the, that the disciples don't recognize Jesus. At first, I thought that that was probably God the Father who was masking Jesus from them, but I kind of wondered about that. It's like, eh, I'm not sure why he would do that, but um, I went with it for a while. But then several years ago at an Alpha retreat, I started to wonder if it wasn't perhaps their barriers that kept them from recognizing Jesus. Let me give you an example to explain what I mean. Mark Powell once did a, an experiment at a seminary with 12 seminary students. The experiment was to read the prodigal son story, to close their Bibles, and with a partner, faithfully retell the story with as many details as they could remember. Well, this was, this was an interesting experiment because none of the 12 American students mentioned the famine, which was kind of the catalyst that caused the son to come to his senses and return home to his father. Powell then had a larger group of 100 people do the same experiment, and only six out of 100 actually mentioned the famine, also Americans. But when he did the same experiment in St. Petersburg, Russia, 42 out of the 50 participants mentioned the famine. Why? Well, it just so happens that only 70 years before, 670,000 Russians died of starvation because of a Nazi-German siege on the capital city, which caused a three-year famine. Here's the point I'm getting to. Our experiences and cultural perspectives won't change the meaning of the text, but it, it, it can alter the way that we see the text. It can influence the way that we read Scripture. In other words, as we read scripture, we all have hidden assumptions and biases. For the two disciples on the road and most of the Jewish people in that time, they expected a specific kind of Messiah, a military and political figure who would, who would lift off the yoke of Rome, save them from their foreign oppressor, and reestablish an earthly Jewish kingdom. Many doubted Jesus was sent by God precisely because he didn't do those things. They missed completely that God was treating the root of our problem rather than a symptom. You see, Roman empires like it, they come and go all throughout history. But the driver of such things has always been human sinfulness. Though Rome was an easy scapegoat, sin is the real enemy and a lot closer to the people and to us than we care to admit. And certainly nobody expected the Messiah would save them by his own death. Messianic ex expectations, therefore, were a major stumbling block for the Jews in Jesus' day. 
But we also have our own cultural biases. We also have our own assumptions about faith and about God. Think about how often we go through life wondering where God is and not realizing that Jesus has shown up and he's walking right beside us. It makes me recall the Footprints in the Sand poem. Have you ever read that one, Footprints in the Sand? It's about another journey, this one of a man walking on a beach. Throughout his life, when times especially are good, he, sees, he looks behind him and he sees two sets of footprints trailing out on the beach. And, but when times are hard, when he's going through sorrow, hardship, he looks back and he sees only one set of footprints. At the end of his life, he confronts God and he says, God, why weren't you there when I was suffering, when I was going through these hard times? Why was there only one set of footprints? And God reveals that he was there. And those were the times when God himself was carrying the man through those hardships, through those sorrows. And so the perception that the man had was that God wasn't present, but the reality was that God was present in the most meaningful of ways. There was a time in my life when I viewed God as aloof or uninvolved, if real at all. But on my journey, he came right up to me and he spoke to me, and I didn't recognize him, but later he, he opened my eyes to see him, just as he's going to open the eyes of these two disciples in our story a little bit later on. As Jesus joins them, he invites them into a conversation, and that leads to the second way you can sustain your Easter hope long term. Reflect on your feeling of hopelessness. The story continues in verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Let's face it. Hopelessness sells, and it's the primary narrative, it seems, of our society these days. Times are getting hard. They're, they're getting worse. They're only going to get worse. That's what we hear over and over again. Have you ever heard of the word permacrisis? Uh, sadly, it was the Collins English Dictionary Word of the Year in 2022, as the world reeled from one crisis to another. The definition of permacrisis is an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. Over the last year, we've seen a war erupt in Ukraine, political instability, inflation, increasing uh, gun violence here in the States, and other serious concerns. As we absorb bad news, permacrisis seems about right. Where do you feel hopeless right now? What in your life seems excluded from the shadow of Calvary, from the shadow of the cross, or the light emerging from a dark tomb? 
as in the story of Cleopas and his friends, there's a tension. On one hand, the body isn't in the tomb, so there's a cause to hope. But on the other hand, circumstances still seem bad, still seem dark. At the end of the day, the religious leaders turned against Jesus and conspired with the Romans to have him crucified. Whether dead or alive, that wasn't supposed to happen, right? Well, put yourself in the mindset of these disciples without centuries of hindsight. Then consider if you've ever been so weary from the journey that you dared not hope, despite there being evidence to support such a hope. Catherine Marshall once told the story of her friend Marge, who was on an outbound flight to Cleveland. And uh, she could see out both sides of the plane, and she was looking out the windows before takeoff. And she saw that the sky on one side of the plane was filled with beautiful colors. But on the other side of the plane, there were dark clouds, ominous clouds on the horizon. And in that moment, she heard a voice, and it reminded her that in her life, there would be happy, beautiful times, but also dark shadows. Either way, the plane was heading to Cleveland by God's grace. She could abide in those dark clouds, or she could give those over to God and choose to abide in him instead. God reassured Marge that the final destination isn't influenced by what we see or hear along the way. And that gave her peace for the journey. With all the bad news around us, we begin to forget about the good news. We begin to doubt it. We get stuck in this place of daring not to hope for the best and buying into the hopelessness around us. By reflecting on your feeling of hopelessness, God does something. He, he creates a space in our lives where he can help us realize that we're stuck. And that leads to the third way that you can sustain your Easter hope long term. And that's to search the scriptures for perspective. Jesus knew these two disciples were stuck. Make no mistake, he knew it. And he spoke into their situation. Here's verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. That's an ouch coming from Jesus. Um, he says, was it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. The disciples knew their scripture. They knew it. But it wasn't until Jesus, they invited Jesus into that conversation that it all started to click. It all started to come together. You see, searching the scriptures, it's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of exercising the will, not entirely. What it is, is it's an abiding in Christ who reveals to us what we really need to know to face the challenges of this life. Jesus knew they were stuck, so he boldly spoke into their situation. When you take the time to read scripture, you may be surprised by when, how God speaks through a verse. Have you ever had that happen where God speaks and it feels like it's just for you through a verse or through a passage? Here Jesus does the same in the flesh, in the story, what he often does in the spirit, guiding us to the truth. The Museum of Natural History in New York um, once arranged a room from the perspective of a dog. I've never been there, but that kind of sounds interesting. So when you enter the room, the dining room tables are these huge pillars, and the chairs are lofty thrones, and the mantle is 
this far above precipice, you know, way up there. Now, which is reality? The room as it looks to a dog or the room as it looks to you or me? I think our bias, of course, is to say, well, the reality is the room as it looks to us. From our perspective, the dog's view of reality is limited. How much more, then, is our view of reality limited compared to Almighty God? Madeline Lengel once wrote in A Wrinkle of Time that, I have a point of view, you have a point of view. God has view. In other words, God doesn't need to rely on a point of view. God has all the view there is. Who better to give us perspective when we're feeling overwhelmed by the journey? One problem, however, is even those of us who, who are seeking to follow Jesus spend way more time than necessary tuning in the bad news, tuning, uh, turning on the bad news, and not enough time reading the good news. But when we're willing to cut back uh, this world's narrative, when we're willing to read God's good news, it puts us in a place where Jesus can really work on our hearts, and we suddenly realize that we're unstuck from that place where we were. Suddenly all the pieces come together, even without knowing the answers to all of our questions. Because the most important, the, the answer to the most important question that this world can ever ask is and will always be Jesus and his presence with each and every one of us. And that naturally leads to the fourth way you can sustain your Easter hope long term. And that's to invite Jesus into your entire life. The disciples don't fully recognize Jesus yet, but they wanted more. And here's what happens next. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When we experience Jesus in our lives, even when we don't recognize him, we always want more. Has it occurred to you that when the disciples invited Jesus to stay with them, it echoed Jesus' commands to abide with him and promised that if we abide with him, he will abide with us as well. It's amazing how all of this ties together, but it's only useful if we put it into practice in our lives. Eugene Peterson once counseled a young mother named Julie. Julie was having a um, really dry spiritual season, and she asked uh, Peterson, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading scripture, but it feels lifeless. My children are always constantly interrupting me. What can I do? Is there a spiritual discipline you can give me that will help me to dig out of this hole I feel that I'm in? And Peterson asked if there was already something in Julie's life that she was doing in a disciplined manner. And Julie, the first thing that came to her mind was her infant daughter and her needs. And Peterson said that this is your spiritual discipline and that God is calling you to be present to what he's already called you to do. Julie suddenly realized that she saw her familial responsibilities as an obstacle to living a godly life, but it was exactly where God wanted to meet her. Friends, there are, there are Christians who leave Jesus behind at church on Sunday mornings. And there are Christians who invite Jesus into their workplace, into their home, um, and into their places of play. It doesn't make, take much discernment to tell the difference between each type of Christian if you've met them. Which type are you right now? Which type are you being called to become? 
You see, when you invite Jesus into your entire life, suddenly the journey doesn't seem so overwhelming because when you invite Jesus in, it puts you in the presence of God's grace. And that leads to the fifth way that you can sustain your Easter hope long-term, and that's to engage every means of grace. This is the climax of the story, the moment when Jesus opens the eyes of these two disciples and in such an unexpected way. We continue on in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Cleopas and his friend didn't recognize Jesus' face or voice. Uh, their hearts burned within them when he opened the scriptures to them on the road, but it wasn't until he sat at the table and broke bread in their presence that their eyes were opened and they finally recognized him. I think this is a beautiful image, a great image, of what happens over a period of time when we engage the means of grace that God has given us. It's not just about reading scripture or praying or taking communion or fasting or serving others in need. All of these things work together to deepen our growth in God's grace. Because we, when we invite Jesus into our entire life, he becomes real to us, and we always want more. And then God works through the means of grace to transform our hearts, to enlarge our hearts for more of God. Did you know that for decades, medicine makers have been trying to develop drugs that can be administered through the skin? Uh, doctors call them transdermal drugs. Uh, and examples are pain-relieving sprays and um, nicotine patches. Uh, there's only a handful of compounds that go through the, the barrier, the thickness of our skin. If our skin is prepared, temporarily altered, medicines can permeate it. To overcome the barrier of our skin, scientists have developed ointments, used very low electrical currents, and also patches with tiny microneedles. Spiritually, we're the same. Just as our skin is hard and has a barrier, so our hearts are hard and have barriers. Just as our skin can be treated to transmit medication to the body, so our souls need the special work of God's grace in order to receive the life and the healing that God has for us. The means of grace are the methods that God has developed that help to penetrate the thickness around our hearts. Have you experienced the season where you were living out your faith, but you, you really weren't aware of God's presence, but suddenly God opened your eyes in a new way? Cleopas and his friend weren't there on the night of the Last Supper. They weren't there to hear Jesus say, take and eat, this is my body, drink from this, all of you, this is my blood. But they probably sat at the table with him before. Maybe they were there at the feeding of the 5,000. They saw him break bread previously. And when we engage the means of grace, we enter into that same story. It becomes real to us, and we realize, along with these disciples, that Jesus has risen from the grave, that this is true. All our mountains, plains, valleys, our entire spiritual journey leads to this place, the very presence of God where we least expect it. As our eyes are opened, even the ordinary things of life become a means of God's grace. I'll give you an example. Uh, on my honeymoon years ago, my wife Teresa and I went uh, on a cruise to the Caribbean. And um, one day I was sitting in the hot tub. I was working hard, um, just sitting there in the hot tub. And uh, 
I, was, I, I lifted my hand out of the water, and the ring that I wear on my right hand, I noticed it had completely tarnished by the chlorine. And the ring that I wear, this is a kind of a blow-up of it, you can't see it from here, um, is when you flip it this way, it kind of looks like um, a maw of teeth. But when you flip it this way, it kind of looks like a, almost could be a crown. And in that moment, I heard God's voice, um, not audibly, but in my head, and God said to me, all earthly crowns will fade, but there is one crown that will never fade. And that just blew my mind in that moment. That was an amazing moment because God transformed this ordinary ring into something that had eternal significance, eternal uh, meaning. Um, and it reminded me that, that if I make my security in life, my ambition, if I make my security in life a earthly thing, it's going to devour me. But if I put my trust in the one crown that will never fade in Jesus Christ, then I will be secure in life. When God transforms the ordinary things of life in this way, when your heart is burning within you as you receive God's grace, it'll move you to embrace the sixth way you can sustain your Easter hope long term. And that's this. Share the good news. Here's how our story ends. Verse 33. That same hour, they went back to Jerusalem. They found the 11 apostles and those who were with them gathering together. They were saying, the Lord has really come back to life and has appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples told what had happened on the road and how they had recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. Do you remember where Cleopas and his friend were traveling at the beginning of our story and where they were leaving from? So they were leaving from Jerusalem and going to the village of Emmaus. Now here at the end of the story, they're leaving Emmaus and turning right back around and going to Jerusalem. You see, when we encounter Jesus' presence in our lives, our eyes are opened, and it changes everything. We're recognizing God's activity around us. And when that happens, we return to what's most important. We share God's love with others. We're prepared to take all of our valleys, our mountains, and our plains in stride. The journey becomes filled with possibility because we're no longer walking alone, or rather, we are present to the presence of God among us. We take on the mission that defines what it means to be a disciple, and that is to share Jesus with others. I read a beautiful thought this week from William Barclay that the gospel is never truly ours until we share it with someone. That's certainly been my experience, and I, I pray, I hope that if it hasn't been your experience, that one day it will be, because nothing compares to the joy of walking with the Lord and being able to share him, to share Jesus with other people that he puts in our path. You see, we all have a journey ahead of us, but to fully embrace the journey and all that it brings into our lives, we need to sustain our Easter hope long term. It all points back to Jesus commanding the disciples abide in me. It all points back to his command of us to abide in me. Because abiding in Jesus, it will sustain your Easter hope. But you may be wondering, how do I know that I'm abiding in Jesus? What does that look like? Well, years ago, um, people used to come up to me and, and uh, say that my wife, Teresa, and I looked alike. Um, Sometimes people who didn't know the nature of our relationship asked if we were brother and sister, which is not the most flattering thing to hear. 
But there's something to it. You see, when you spend a lot of time with someone, you begin taking on the same characteristics, the same mannerisms, the same figures of speech as that person. It's a, it can be a positive thing. It can also be a negative thing, depending on who you're spending time with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> well, as it so happens, Teresa and I celebrated... 10 years of marriage just three weeks ago, and uh, we're, um, we were together seven years before that uh, dating. So over 17 years, God has changed both of us, and we've changed each other. And the beautiful thing is that we often know what each other is thinking. We tend to think the same way, say the same things. And as we abide with each other through good times and bad, our bond is strengthened by what we experience together. And the whole reason I'm bringing this up is because it's the same with Jesus. As we abide with Jesus, Jesus promises to abide with us. This involves doing the things Jesus does, saying the things Jesus says, following God's commands, God's will for our lives. It may not feel natural at first. As you think back on your life, you may feel like a fraud. You may feel like a phony. But over time, that changes. We become more like Jesus, and we take on the characteristics of Jesus. We start to care about the things that Jesus cares for, and we begin to do the same things about it that Jesus calls us to do. What once seemed unnatural to our sinful nature becomes as easy as slipping on a comfortable pair of jeans. There are times when I feel overwhelmed by how much growing I have yet to do, but then I look back at how far God has brought me, and I'm amazed. I am I am grateful for what God has done in my life. And I encourage you to look back at your own life and see how far God has brought you as well. Because that's what happens when we abide in Jesus. We become like Jesus in character, and we feel the joy of the Lord. As we continue the spiritual journey across mountains, across every valley, and across the plains, my prayer for each of us is that we would sustain our Easter hope long-term by abiding in Jesus. Abiding involves dealing with our barriers, reflecting on our feelings of hopelessness, searching the scriptures for perspective, inviting Jesus into our entire life, engaging every means of grace, and sharing the gospel with other people. You and I aren't so different from Cleopas and his friends. We're on the same spiritual journey. We're running the same spiritual race. And we don't need to be overwhelmed by it because you know why you're in the race. And over time, it becomes easy to love God, love others, and live out the gospel life. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy, which is made possible for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we come before you seeking more of you. Lord, for those times when our hearts have been burning within us, when we've opened scripture, when we've opened your word, and, and you've spoken to us through that, through that verse, through that passage, Lord, our hearts are burning within us, and we want more of that. We want more of you. And so today, Lord, we pray that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us like never before. We pray, God, that you would help us to deal with our barriers, that you would help us to reflect on our feelings of hopelessness. Lord, 
we pray that you would help us to search the scriptures, that we would engage the means of grace you've given, that we would invite you into our entire life. And Lord, that we would tell others of your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, give us that desire. Give us that heart right now. Enlarge our hearts. Make it possible for us, Lord, to grow more and more like your Son and our Savior. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are on the journey with us. We may look behind us and only see one set of footprints, but Lord, help us to recognize that there are times in our lives when you're there and we, we don't necessarily see you. And give us eyes, Lord, to see you in all your glory and to share that with the world. So God, we give you thanks, we give you praise, honor, and glory. We pray all this with the holy and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.